I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is a prominent global expert on the subject of fast adaptation. She's a sociobiologist, a futurist, and an author, the host of a very successful weekly news program that is now becoming a podcast called The Costa Report. Rebecca is a prominent global expert on the subject of fast adaptation where she brings both an evolutionary biologist and a technologist perspective together to look at how trends of adaptation of societies and the human race actually work. Rebecca was the founder and CEO of one of the largest technology marketing firms in California and has been at the forefront of technological and scientific innovation as she continued to assist venture capitalists and large corporations to identify, fund, and launch disruptive new trends. Retiring at the peak of her career in Silicon Valley, Rebecca spent six years researching and writing the international bestseller, The Watchman's Rattle, a radical new theory of collapse, a book I cannot recommend enough. In The Watchman's Rattle, she uses data science to identify points at which societies collapse. Her next book then was titled On the Verge and was introduced in 2017 to critical acclaim. It shot directly to the top of Amazon's number one new business releases. The success of her books, of course, led to her news program, The Costa Report, which was very, very successful and is now leading her to her new podcast, The Costa Report. I know the work of Rebecca for a long time. I love how data and facts driven she is. And yet we're not just going to talk about data, but we're really going to talk about society and what history tells us about where we are today as the human race and where we might be going from here. Without further ado, Rebecca Costa. So first of all, thank you so much for being here. I think this has been one of the of the conversations I've been waiting for. Big fan of your work and very grateful for your time. Well, thank you so much. And uh, it's a mutual fan club, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's so kind of you. <laughs> Ever since I somebody handed me um, Solving for Happiness, mm-hmm. I said, who is this Mo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's who this guy? Who is this fellow? And why don't I know him? <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly my questions. Why don't we know each other? It's like, it's... We should. We should be collaborating. Absolutely. Our paths have been very similar. Yeah, yeah, I and know. And I wouldn't I... be surprised if our backgrounds were had some similarities as well. You're a bit like me. So you're a bit from the East and the West, right? So you're not entirely Westernized. You had a childhood that was also in the East, yes. right? Yes. For 16 years, I lived in, in Japan. Oh, did you... Yes, I did. I, I was raised in Japan. That's and, my favorite uh, place so on my, the planet. My thinking is 
much more group oriented. It took uh-huh. me a very long time to assimilate the fact that I had to look out for myself. <laughs> exactly. Not so much for the whole company and my teams and my group and my boss. You come from this different mentality when you come from an Asian background. Totally. I actually speak about this very often. When people ask me the biggest differences between the East and the West, in my view, the two top values in the West are individuality and freedom. And the top two values in the East are respect and community. And so when you're so completely focused on community, you forget to take care of yourself, which I think is really an interesting downside. Yeah, I I think, you know, as I said earlier, both of us probably didn't do our careers the service that we could have done. Yeah, I'm with you. We could have been much more individually ambitious. It took me a while to figure that out because I thought that I would move in, in these corporations I would be the person who started in the mailroom and earn my way up by being loyal to the company, to the team, to the objectives. And uh, meanwhile, everyone else was looking out for themselves. Exactly. I was helping many people to advance. (laughs) (laughs) When when was the turning point? When did you discover that, oh, this is not serving me? Um, I think uh, I was sitting in a, a meeting with a lot of vice presidents and the CEO of the company. And um, I had made a report. I love doing research. So of course I had reams and reams and reams of statistics and numbers. And it was fairly obvious what was going to happen to the marketplace in the future. And I had made my case and they all voted not to do it. Oh, okay. And I was, I was sort of dumbfounded. So on my way home, I stopped off to see my father who was kind of a in-your-face, direct kind of fellow. He, he like never those. minced words. Yeah. You know, he wasn't one of the modern dads that carry their baby, uh, you know, in a little sack on, on their chest and play with them. He, he wasn't that <laughs> guy. He was a guy that when you got out of college, the number one job is how are you going to pay rent? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, so, <laughs> straight. Yeah, yeah. so he, he was a very pragmatic fellow. And, and I said to him, I can't believe it. I did all the research. I communicated what the risks were. They're almost zero. And I can't believe these guys turned me down. And he said, well, welcome to the corporate world. There are a lot of reasons decisions get made. And very few get made for good reasons. And you're stuck on this. If I present the facts and get and amass so many facts, I win. Mm. Right? This is what my job is, is to present the case. And uh, I took it seriously, and I I never went in unprepared. And when that happened, I said, well, they have other motives. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Not necessarily what we should do, what was good for the company, what was good for society, what was good for community. They're driven by something else. And as a person who studied evolutionary biology, it finally sort of came together for me at that moment. I said, we have these paleolithic emotions that are driving many of our decisions very unconsciously. 150 some odd years ago, when when we had this demarcation, where we decided that if you believed in Darwin and you believed in empirical science, that you couldn't possibly believe in God. Mm. And when we created this standoff, 150 some odd years ago, there was this bifurcation that occurred. 
And from that point on, we've been unable to acknowledge anything about Hmm. our prehistoric emotions. And so as a sociobiologist who had studied that, I said, you know, I need to go off and create a new company for myself where I have the freedom to make all my decisions only based on the data and to challenge myself when I'm choosing otherwise. Mm. And to have people around me say, I don't think your motives are clean. (laughs) Oh my God. That's amazing, actually. I have to say I spent a very long time in the corporate world and I never actually heard it so clearly. I mean, in my reality as well, you know, my successes were the result of being data-driven and facts-driven and really caring about the company, but also my failures. My failures was when I got stuck in places where I really, really cared to do the right thing. I had the data to back it up. And then the rest of the people were, didn't find that this was in their best interest, if you want. Yes. And sometimes it meant that an investment the company had made was no good. We were going to have to say that was a mistake. Exactly. Yeah. We, we have to go this way now because we have more data now. Yeah. And, and this is the, um, the angst of science is that you make the best calls with the information you have, but understanding that the information is changing, it's dynamic. So the unfortunate thing is, is that scientists, true scientists and true engineers, are always in a position of vulnerability. You're always in a position of having made a decision and now having to reverse that or enhance that. We see that happening right now with the vaccines. Mm, Exactly. You say one thing based on the data and empirical information you have, like Fauci saying, well, we're not sure masks are going to do anything at the very beginning of the pandemic. And then later, I have to explain to people, more data came in and it showed that masks were helping. And so the only ethical and moral intelligent thing to do when the data has changed is to change your position. Otherwise, what do you do? Hold on to something just because you're worried that, you know, people will think you're a flake? I mean, this isn't how science works. Science works in that it's constantly evolving based on the data, which means you have to be very vulnerable and you have to say, hey, I fought for that. I thought that was the right way. I've been proven wrong. People were confused by me because I would be very passionate. We need to do this. And then someone would prove me wrong and I'd say I was totally wrong. And they would be dumbfounded that I would abandon my position. <laughs> That's so interesting. Them, well, what do you expect me to do? Your data shows I was wrong. It was never my position, I think, is the answer. It was always my intention to just do what I realize is what needs to be done. And that's my position. So it's not in a specific point that my position is. It's on the good side is where my position is. On the on the facts that I find is my position. And that's a very solid position, but it's also a very fluid position when the data changes. I think that's really something, I think that would change our world if the world started to behave this way. Yes, I think so. You and I have worked in artificial intelligence for quite a long time before it sort of became known and (laughs) and popularized. And I have to keep reminding people, whether you're talking about AI or you're talking about people like Fauci having to go public with a decision and then later modify that decision, whether it's a person like you and I that are leading a team or a group within a company, that there are no facts about the future. 
<laughs> there are only probabilities. Yes, exactly. Right? I mean, there is no fact about the future that won't be proven wrong or will have to be modified. So you can only have theories and probabilities about the future. What AI is helping us do is it's helping those probabilities get more and more and more precise. The more data we amass, right? The more data we amass, the better those probabilities start to become to the point where it's really going to rub up against a lot of assumptions that we make about the fact that the future can't be known. So much about the future can be known. We've been living with this assumption that you can't know what's going to happen in the future. And yet, at MIT, as an example, they've discovered that within an 85% probability, we can determine that a person's going to trip and fall. Is that true? In the next three uh-huh. weeks. In the next three weeks. Uh-huh. And people say to me, that's impossible. You can't know I'm going to trip and fall. And I said, well, we've discovered that your normal walking gait changes somewhere between one to three centimeters. Mm. And that's the precursor in 85% of the cases of you tripping and falling. That is amazing. So if we know that within a three-week window, that 85% of the people who have a change in their normal walking gait is going to trip and fall, imagine what that does for the elderly, who many times that's the end of them living independently. They're going to now have to go into assisted living or require care, hip surgery. It's not good when you're old, right? My my grandmother used to say, don't fall. <laughs> Every day I wake up, I say, don't fall. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if you understand science and you say, all right, I know that 85% within a three-week window, that will become a two-week window. And it'll become a one-week window. And it will be, go from 85% to 86, 87. And pretty soon, we will be able to put a little Fitbit-looking device on your ankle. And when your normal walking gait, which we've tracked, changes one to three centimeters, we'll ping your phone, we'll ping your caretaker's phone, we'll ping your relative's phone, and we'll say, don't take stairs, go in and get your walking gait repaired. You're in danger of tripping and falling in the next day. This is how science moves. And so really, we're getting to this point where we can really predict with great probability what the future is. Not 100%, but boy, 85%. That's really good. But the the interesting side of this statement is that you're saying this is because of AI, when in reality there is a lot. I mean, I know you work with Ray Kurzweil. So his view of singularity is that about AI itself, we don't have any certainty about how the future may become when AI is smarter than us. I disagree completely with Ray. Mm. I believe that the future, it will be 100% certain. And what will that be? This is such a sea change for society. The example that I give of how disruptive this is to our lives, how disruptive this is going to become, is the fact that um, we tend to work backwards when there's a mass killing, like the uh, shooter in Las Vegas, Stephen Paddock, as an example. After he shot all of those people, We started working backwards. And we, as you know, probably know that his father was a a very dangerous sociopath who spent the majority of his life in prison. He was locked up for murdering people and he was a really a bona fide sociopath. That's a heritable quality. Unfortunately, we don't know what to do about that, but 
It's a heritable quality. Not only was that the situation of his father, he was put on diazepam, which he should never be put on, about three months before the shooting. And that's not recommended for people who have a history of of sociopaths in their family. And he started, he sent his girlfriend away to another country and sent her $100,000 and said, don't come back. Wow. Just a few days before. And he started trying to buy tracer rounds, which are very good for evening shooting, nighttime shooting. He moved 26 times just prior to the incident. And so there are all these factors. Uh, I think I charted 160 factors, which were all indicating that this man was going to reach criticality. It was like a pot that was boiling. You know, the first couple bubbles hit the surface and then you start to see a lot of white bubbles and they start coming up and then the bubbles get larger and larger. We can say if you put heat under a pot of water, there's a very high probability that if the heat is strong enough, it will boil. We know that for sure. And certain. the water will yep. evaporate. These are high probabilities that that maybe one day that won't happen. It, ha- it always happens in, in my kitchen. <laughs> exactly. And, and so <laughs> we can see that these things are reaching criticality. But I have to remind a lot of people that movie Tom Cruise was in, Minority Report. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a documentary <laughs> where, <laughs> where just before someone was getting ready to commit a crime, the precog police, precognition police, one split second before came and arrested them. And they showed that with 100% probability, the person was going to carry out the act, right? They were able to do that. Well, we're going to get there. That is incredible. But what would we do? What would we do? I mean, we believe as a society, and I know you believe this, and I believe this very strongly, that even after he packed up all of his guns and ammo and rented that room in the Las Vegas hotel and broke the window and pointed his gun at the concert-going crowd, he could have changed his mind. He could have sat down on the bed and said, I'm not going to do it. I could do it, but I'm not going to do it and put the guns away and gone home. We believe in that. That's really important to us. And yet, all of the AI models and all of the data that we're collecting on the kinds of words people are using on Facebook and social media, many times this information isn't having to dig around in your medical records and private data. We could just go into publicly available data And we can see who is suicidal by the words they use. Hmm. We're really getting to this point. And yet we don't, we don't want to have the conversation. We don't want to say, well, but what does that mean for us? If we can stop a mass shooting. Fascinating, but it's still to me a question of, if I may use the analogy, we're building some kind of an autonomous being that is capable of its own self-development that is capable of procreation. It can replicate itself. It's going to be smarter than all of us. And like Minsky, you know, sort of the original founder of the uh, Dartmouth workshop said, and we have no way of ensuring that AI will have our best interest in mind. Where do you see a future with that going? Well, when we say our best interest, we're projecting a human quality onto AI. Correct. Because we don't, humans don't act in our best interest, not (laughs) collectively or individually. 
Correct. Yeah. We make many decisions that are really bad for our individual interests, never mind what's happening with climate change and nuclear proliferation. And and so it's interesting that we get judgmental over AI and say, yes, but what if it doesn't make decisions in in our interests individually or collectively? And I'm saying, well, we're not doing such a good job anyway. Absolutely. (laughs) So, So there's that. But true AI will be able to be self-correcting. It doesn't suffer from the paleolithic emotions that we have, that we're unconscious of. It doesn't have to serve itself because serving itself isn't actually really intelligent. Mm. An intelligent being doesn't serve itself. It's like the coronavirus. I explain to people, generally speaking, regardless of whether you like Trump or not, when he said, This virus will eventually die down. Well, most viruses, they're like mammals. They're like everybody else. It wants to live. Its purpose is to live. It doesn't do well if it kills off its host. Correct. So viruses in the natural world tend to come on strong and really kill a lot of hosts. But then they, they kind of mutate. They evolve so that they make you sick, but they certainly don't want to kill you off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So in that, in that similar way, We have to understand that over time, AI is not in AI's best interest to be self-serving to AI. That's not intelligent. That's why I'm not sure it's artificial intelligent. We might be the artificial intelligence (laughs) and AI might be the intelligence because what AI will do is it will weed out. It has the capability to look at outlying data and saying that doesn't matter. I'm 100% with you there. So I don't know if you're aware, but my next book is exactly about that topic. And I start at the beginning with what I call the three inevitables, that AI will happen and that AI will be smarter than us and that, yeah, we're bound to get a few mistakes on the way. But then at the very end of the book, I talk about what I call the fourth inevitable, which is exactly so beautifully stated. I mean, I agree 100% by you. Basically, that AI will sort of match the ultimate intelligence, which is the intelligence of life itself, which is basically, I don't need to kill humans to survive. You know, as a matter of fact, abundance is a very good place to be where flies are useful and antelope are useful and tigers are useful and humans as well. But, But I think the real question is humans as we are today, as you also rightly said, are harming the planet, we're stupid, we're engaging in things that I believe are because of our limited intelligence that may need to be corrected. Would you expect a moment in the future when a superior intelligence will say, guys, can we please stop you know, traveling to Australia to surf? Can you just go surf somewhere nearer so that we save the planet? Or can we find a way to deliver a, a piece of watermelon to mow without really having to use single-use plastic? And it's, it's those lifestyle changes that become really interesting when you think about them. You're absolutely right. But we're, you know, Ed Wilson put it in the most precise way that I've ever heard. He said, we have Paleolithic emotions medieval institutions, and godlike technology. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. That's the best so way to say it. when you put these three things together, this is the current state of humankind. Yes. It's the current state of our lives and our existence. So you can talk about, well, AI will eventually say, you know, you don't need to go there to surf. You can get just as much fun and you don't need to use these plastics. We can use... Uh, fibers from trees to make transparent packaging. 
yeah. uh, which we're doing right now. What happens, I think, with AI is that we can act before the fact. This is a matter of humans acting after the fact. Yeah. And AI giving us the opportunity right now in current times to act before the fact. And I see the transition already occurring. And I'll tell you why. Because if I go out the front door, I happen to live in Oregon, and we get a lot of rain. We get uh, 16 feet of rain (laughs) on the coast of Oregon. So we get a lot of rain. Now we've got to figure out how to get that water to California, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Completely doable, not a problem, but we just haven't gotten on it before the fact. We're going to get on it after the fact. Mm-hmm. So when I go out, many times the sun is out and uh, my neighbor might say, hey, it smells like the rain might be coming. You might want to take a rain jacket. And I will walk inside and the first thing I'll do is, what do you think? You look at data. I ask Alexa (laughs) or I look at my cell phone. Yeah, yeah. And here's what's wonderful. If I do ask my smart speaker or my phone, it will tell me, again, back to probabilities, not facts. It'll say 90% chance of rain in two hours. Now, am I going to trust my neighbor or or do you think I'll trust (laughs) my cell phone or my smart speaker? There's no debate here. Everybody trusts the weather on their smart speaker and their phone over their neighbor saying it smells like rain. <laughs> right? Yes. And now with the GOES satellites that we just launched a year ago, we have three times the data, which as you know, three times the data means levels, many, yeah. many levels Order exponentially of, yeah. of accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. It's not three yeah. times accuracy. It's many, many more levels of that. So now we're getting better and better and better to the point where the other day I was walking and my phone pinged and it said rain in three minutes. No way. Yes. And I put my hands up. I'm in the middle of the forest. There's nobody there but my dog. And I went, yes. (laughs) We got it. Rain in three minutes. Am I the only one that's blown away that that shows up on my phone? That is incredible. But did it rain in three minutes? Yes, because I'm such a nerd. I'm like you. I got out my uh, stopwatch on my phone. timer, exactly. I'm awful. I'm awful that way. Like, you don't want to go on a hike with me because I'm my phone and I'm going, wait, this is three minutes. I hit my stopwatch. (laughs) And it was only off by, I think, 21 seconds or something. Yeah, I, I think we can forgive it for that, right? I mean, like, <laughs> we're good with three minutes and that's like uh, 3% off, basically. Not too bad. I think that's really, really cool. So we're, we're absolutely it's okay. It's absolutely amazing. So that, I, I believe this transition is already occurring. Yeah. I believe yeah. we trust our smart speakers to turn our thermostats on, to give us information and data. We're not really questioning it. We question other humans. Look at the trust level in government, in scientific experts, and then look at the trust level that's gone up on a completely anonymous source off of a smart speaker. Mm. That trust is high, and we don't trust government leaders. We don't even trust scientists. That was going to be my next point, is to say, with all that knowledge and data, we still make horrible decisions. (laughs) 
I actually have a saying around this. It's I, I always say it's not hard to do the right thing. It's just hard to know what the right thing is or in the sense of where we are now to convince people what the right thing is, right? So the reality is, I don't know your views and maybe it's a, too political of a topic, but the reality is we could have definitely handled COVID better. We could have pre-handled it. We could have handled it early enough. We could have handled it without the panic. We could have handled it by segregating the society differently and saying those people need to be completely protected. Those people can continue. There were many, many other options. I mean, one of the interesting sides of the conversation is all of the talk about vaccination when there is very little talk about cure, which you know is the typical way we respond to the flu and so on. It's not because we don't have the data. As a matter of fact, we had warning signs a very long time before that was to a mathematician, almost a certainty that we were going to hit a pandemic, right? But yet we don't because humanity just, something is very wrong with our model of decision-making as humans. No, it, it's not wrong. It's slow. Oh, interesting. It's slow. Mm. I don't think it's wrong. And here's the reason why. When you think about the evolution of this spacesuit that you and I and the rest of humanity is trapped in, right? It evolves very, very slowly. I could use extra appendages right now in my car to answer my phone and drive a two-ton vehicle at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> Obviously, yeah. we couldn't figure out we couldn't do the, both those things. So we had to have laws that tell us not to do that. We haven't really come to terms with the biological spacesuit and what its programming is designed to do and not to do. And so one of the problems that we have is that when I throw a snake down at your feet, mm -hmm. your body is filled with immediately with chemicals. Correct. You bypass any rational thought and you're either going to fight or flight. You're going to kill the snake or jump back. But we've already proven in science that the further and further out the danger is, the less you are programmed to act. Mm. So your body will take an action over an immediate threat, but all you have to do is get a teenager and start talking to them about saving for retirement <laughs> and their eyes glass over. Yeah. They can't really relate to it. And it's the problem we have with things like climate change. Correct. Until we're on fire or we turn the tap and there's no more water, until the houses on the coast disappear, are completely submerged, we're not designed biologically to spring into action. This is the great angst of humanity right now. We have the data to tell us what is coming. And that certainty of what's coming is going to get more and more accurate. And yet biologically, we were never designed to respond to long-term threats. Hmm. And this is rubbing up against knowledge. Biology and knowledge are, are in conflict. Mm. And so we're behaving foolishly. We always think we have more time than we do. And proof of that is even how our brains look at problems. Our brains really don't do a good job. The average person on the street, you can give them a really simple exponentiation problem, mathematical problem. And they can't think in those terms. They think in terms of linear, of linear course. causation. Of course. 
I flushed my toilet, the garage door opened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there must be a connection. <laughs> Correlation, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Our brains want to correlate everything, mm. which in some ways has made it very easy for conspiracy theories to, yeah. to happen. Because now with so much data, you can go in and cherry pick that, 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 that. And my gosh, it looks like it's related. Yeah, and and it's, it's a fantastic story. Must be true. I mean, I have gone on conspiracy theory YouTube videos and watched them. These are not stupid people. What they don't understand is the more data we have, the easier it is to string together things that look very logical. Very logical. So we're kind of entering this period where biology is working against us. We can't think in exponentiating terms. We have trouble with social institutions being able to act before the fact. We're not designed to take action over anything that's not an immediate threat. And the further it is out, the more we, more time we think we have. These are biologically based problems, in my view. And yet, in your absolute must-read, if any of our listeners have not read The Watchmen's Rattle You, you're actually not so pessimistic about our future. Well, no, because I get into trouble about this. I trust technology more than I trust humans. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's embarrassing to admit, but I know that humans have a lot of ancient programming. And whereas technology is just, you know, it's on or off, it's eliminating outlying data, it has some biases that it will self-correct because that's true intelligence. It won't act in its own interest because that's not intelligent to act in your own interest, not when you're part of a system like a biological system on Earth. So as you say, AI systems will go oh, those ants are necessary because they help to pollinate. That food source is something that humans rely on. And so it's going to be able to look at lots of factors and make decisions on a far more complex level than our brains are ever going to catch up to. Evolution is slow. Progress is fast. There are two clocks. Yeah. There are two clocks. Evolution is moving very, very slowly. Progress begins to accelerate. Eventually, the two clocks meet and societies collapse. By collapse, we revert to simpler social systems that our brains can understand, like bartering at a flea market. We get that. We understand barter. I have eggs. You have uh, carrots. We meet in the street. We bicker until we both think we got the better deal. And then I leave with eggs and carrots and you leave with eggs and carrots. Our brains are designed to understand that. What our brains don't understand are credit default swaps. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, people have explained them to you and I, and I'm going, I don't know what that is. I am good. I'm good. Like, I really know math. And there are points where I go like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, you know, it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, the math makes sense, but the whole thing is like, or add exchange. That was one moment in my life where I was like, that's it. I'm too old. I just can't get this anymore. And we create those weird things that don't exist. And we think of them as real. How many times do you sit with your financial advisor and he's talking about something and you just nod your head? And I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, he's talking to someone who had calculus in third grade. Yeah, exactly. I went through the Japanese school system. I had calculus yeah. in third grade. 
I don't know what he just said. Absolutely. Like, wow. I have to admit, and it's not arrogant. There were times when I would be presented with stuff and I would go like, I don't even know if anyone can understand this. If I don't get this, then what are they talking about? But that's the truth of humanity that we over and over and over complicate. But I can't skip the word that you said. So societies collapse. What does that mean in our future? Do you believe we will go back to a simpler? I mean, it's so complicated now, Rebecca. It's Every so complicated. Every society, as you know, in the watchman's rattle, Yeah. I went back and said, are there any road signs along the way? that we're not paying attention to that says that a society is reaching criticality. Yes. Right. And so I went back and looked at the Mayans, the Romans, the Ming empire, the Egyptian empire. And it was interesting that you could see that their social system started to become very, very complex. People didn't know where their water or their food was coming from. They didn't know the monetary system. The average person on the street had no idea as the Roman Empire was getting larger and larger and much more complex. They didn't know how the armies were being paid for. They didn't know what territories were being conquered. So you see that societies get grow, start to exponentiate in terms of complexity until, until it doesn't take much to set a fire to the fuse. Historians have covered the actual triggering event that causes societies to collapse. I wasn't interested in the triggering event. I think there was a way that societies were behaving beforehand that made them vulnerable to that triggering event. And the stages that I was able to outline in that book was the first stage was complexity started accelerating. Which we have so clearly. Yeah, the data that you needed to be able to make a rational decision in your day-to-day life was too complicated. Yeah. And that got us to the second stage. The second stage was that because it was too complicated, there was mass confusion in the society between what was an empirical fact and what was an unproven belief, Mm. if you will. And so for a long time, Societies behave very empirically, and then as complexity grows, they can't tell what's a belief and what's a fact anymore. And then the third stage is that confusion begins to migrate into government, and the government becomes unable to tell what is a belief and what is an empirically proven fact, and public policy becomes irrational. At that point, the society is vulnerable to mass collapse. A triggering event will occur. So a lot of people, I wrote that book 10 years ago, were looking and saying, we're going through the steps. Totally. It's undeniable. Life became too complex. The person on the street doesn't know the difference between a belief and an empirically proven fact. And now it's percolated up to government. So yes, I do believe that there will be a collapse, but a collapse to me is a reversal. A better word is a reversal. Yeah. All social systems will break down and then we'll begin the climb again. Break down to what, Rebecca? Break down to what our brains can handle, to what we're biologically designed, to the state to which we have evolved, where I can make sense of the world and I can make empirically based decisions. 
So let's be specific. So would that mean, for example, that our current news networks, which are propagating so much information would disappear or people would stop using them? Would it mean that our consumerism would reverse? We would find ways to actually survive without having to deal with all of this, without being capitalism, the constant bombardment of, I mean, in all honesty, we're unable to make decisions because most of the information we get is so complex and so sometimes hidden and we are in that race all the time. Would those go away? It's very difficult to say how this reversal will occur in modern times because we may be the first society, I call us the technolithic era. Yeah. We, the technolithic era may be the first era that doesn't have to go through a complete reversal and start over and make the climb again. We won't collapse in the way that the Mayans or the Roman societies did, but it will be global. Wow. It will likely be triggered by either war or a financial collapse. We almost started to see it in the Arab Spring. We -hmm. started to see it, we saw little previews when the different countries that joined the Euro yeah. Greece, Italy, you know, they were all kind of going bankrupt because they had fudged on their accounting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was predictable. So it's going to be interesting to see how that reversal occurs. It doesn't mean everybody will die. It just means the social systems that you depend on, like uh, the valuation of currency and um, supply lines for food and things like that will change. There'll be a dramatic shift. We had a third one, which was COVID where everyone was asked to stay home. Yeah. Right? And uh, all of a sudden, you couldn't get toilet paper. And the only thing, in my view, that kept the collapse from occurring was the the supply chain in the United States. Can you imagine? I have a friend of mine who says, um, anarchy is five missed meals away. Oh, wow. So in any society, no matter how developed you are, if you have the citizenry in general... Miss five meals. Watch what happens. I mean, you mentioned the Arab Spring. It was very clear in places like Egypt and Tunisia and so on. The first thing that people were shouting in Egypt was, So basically, people were asking for bread. That's the number one thing they were asking for. They said, feed us, give us freedom, and give us social justice. That's how the Arab Spring was triggered. And it's exactly that. You know, if people are hungry five meals away, they will rise. You watch, that food supply chain shuts down, you have anarchy. And from anarchy, what do you have? You have a collapse of social systems. So in some ways, that's the definition of anarchy. So I was watching very carefully and said, it is all going to depend on the food supply chain. I love, love, love you. We're so similar. You're so factual. You're so factual. It's like it can't be missed by almost the naked eye, all of those trends. And yet you're so optimistic. You're saying it's just a reset. Societies go through it all the time. We have to reset because it's so complicated. What do you think people should do in preparation for such, I wouldn't say imminent, but almost undeniable changes that will lead us to a place where our way of life has to change? Well, on a humorous side, I will tell you that uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who works on Wall Street, and he said, well, you know, everything you've told me means buy gold. 
<laughs> exactly. Everyone says that when, when they're in the finance world, they'll say right. buy gold. And, yeah. and I started laughing and I said, well, I hope you do because I'm going to buy canned goods. <laughs> right? Okay. And I'm going to sell them to you and for gold. And you're going to give me all your gold for a can of beans. I'm going to get all your gold because I'm a biologist, sociobiologist, and, and I will tell you that you can't eat gold and silver. You can't drink it. And so go ahead because I'm going to get all of it. Mm. Right? For one bag of rice or one can of beans, you'll give, you'll turn it all over to me. Again, we've gotten away from our biological origins and the fact that you need food, you need water, you need shelter from the elements, you need love mm. and meaning in your life. Gets back to some of the work that you have done, which is so important. And you need those things, but you don't need gold and silver. Hmm. That's not a human need. Cryptocurrency, I have to tell my kids, cryptocurrency is not a human need. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not even a currency. But no, but no, but I think I think the question here is that this is really a total reset because in reality, this artificial world that we've created is what people think is the world today. When you really think about it. People don't think of those basic needs anymore. Those basic needs are abstracted in so many layers. We need suits and we need fancy cars and we need gold and silver. When in reality, all of our other real needs are fulfilled. If we really give them attention, you know. Well, you sure. Go ahead and get all those things. Mm -hmm. But uh, you will die a young person if you're lonely. Mm, exactly. Right. So we've proven in science, it's not a guessing game, that loneliness is a killer. You're more susceptible to disease if you're lonely. You're more likely to end your own life if you're lonely. So are you going to put cars and gold and silver and career ahead of loneliness? Sure, but you're basically saying, I'm choosing a shorter life and poor health if I do live longer. Exactly. My biggest concern is, you know, I started a podcast not long ago myself. Yeah, I was just going to My talk biggest about concern it. is this information isn't out there right? It's not out there. People can make intelligent choices if you give them that data. When I tell people, you do realize that all of the health studies that we've done of people starting from when they were born till when they're 80 years old indicate loneliness will shorten your life. And if you do have a long life, you'll be sick a lot of it. And they go, well, is that proven? Saying, yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, look at the figures. So tell us about the Costa report. Actually, I want, I want all of our listeners to hear about this. So you did the show for a long time and now it's a podcast. And so tell us about the podcast. Well, I'm like you. I, I'm very data driven. And it's sad for me that people, if they had all the information, they would see all the things they could do, right? And the better choices they can make. But no one in the media is really interested in doing in-depth conversations like this. Correct. Yeah. This is why I think you and I should get together and do something about that. I mean, done. they don't done. want to give this information to the general public. I don't know why, because it's not like they're not interested. They are interested in hearing from smart people. So I reached out to the top lawyer that advises the Biden administration on space flight and a top psychologist that has been dealing with you know Jed Diamond on gen on gender Jed. oh my god on yeah. gender psychology um mm -hmm. and uh one of the top health experts 
in the world that used to be an executive VP with Abbott Labs. I kind of reached out to this network of people and I said, would you be interested in doing a podcast together? And secretly, and just being truthful here, I was hoping they'd say no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because as you know, putting on a podcast it's on a, a regular lot of basis effort. is a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. So I thought they'd say, no, nah, I'm not really interested. Well, every one of them said yes. Yeah, it's needed. It's badly needed. Because every one of these experts does 10, 15, 100 interviews on network TV and radio. And their, their interviews are 90 seconds long. <laughs> yes. Come on. What are you going to say in a minute or three minutes? Maybe they'll give you three minutes. What can you say that will change the world in three minutes, really? The way that the networks work is they want to move every two and three minutes to a different subject. So there's really no chance to explain the rationale. All you have, if you go through public relations training, is they just train you on sound bites. Hit the same sound bites over and over and over and over again. I don't think anybody's benefiting from that. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot in our media systems in general where negativity, not facts, are prioritized. It's it's hype and not facts. It's also, as we used to say in Silicon Valley, you know, vapor is worth much more than solids. And it takes a lot of effort to get to the solids. It's a, it takes a lot of effort to actually criticize yourself and reflect on the data and just analyze and criticize and make it accurate. So why would you do that if people have gotten used to 90 seconds filled with negativity for your uh, negativity bias and they'll sell. But it's highly needed that people need to start. Actually, I normally tell my listeners that the world would be much better if you dropped every topic that you are really not concerned with and actually dedicated the time that you waste on all of that waste of time to actually look at the topics you are concerned with, with a lot of more depth. Yes. Read Find experts in that field, be patient, be willing to listen to something for one hour or two hours and really get some verifiable data. Those venues have evaporated. Yeah. And so I think there's demand for it. I just thought, well, I'll do this podcast and I will put this information out there. And then if it's the right thing, if there is demand for it, it will organically grow. And that's what it looks like is happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a breath of fresh air, honestly, to find something that is able to substantiate what it's talking about rather than just go through the hype. And you and I know that if you get enough traction on a podcast like this, this conversation that's very important that we're having today you get enough traction on that and you get millions and millions and then tens of millions and then hundreds of millions, you will change the way the networks behave. Absolutely. Because they're copycats. They copy whatever is successful. Yeah. So the name of the game is really to get more and more people to listen to podcasts like this so that there's proven demand until some network executive goes, hey, 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 we're missing an opportunity over here. Yeah. We need this kind of programming. Totally with you. I mean, the example I normally give and I wrote about in Scary Smart is, is the idea that if people stop purchasing the iPhone 13 because it's fancy and actually look for, you know, ask Apple and say, we're not purchasing another one until you give us real substance of something that actually works and makes my life better and so on and so forth. 
I, Apple will listen and say, of course, that's what you want. I'll build it. But as long as we keep moving with the demand. So for our listeners, I really urge you to check out the Costa report. I think it's uh, the rigor that we need in our world. And while the data and facts sometimes piss us off, and I say that openly, remember in my work, what I call committed acceptance, the first first step you need to take in order to change the world or change your own life is to acknowledge the facts and the truth. Maybe you won't like them all the time. Maybe they're not as entertaining as a reel on Instagram, but knowing and accepting facts and reality is the first step you can take to make your life better. Rebecca, I really don't know how to thank you. I mean, honestly, if there is ever a way for us to collaborate, this would be an absolute honor. You are truly oh, I would a love to do it. I, I think it would be so exciting. And I do have to say, I think we've been very entertaining. I do too. I, honestly, people send us your feedback, honestly, on uh, on social media, <laughs> because this is the kind of conversation that I truly, truly, truly admire. I think we need to have more of it. And yeah, I think it was very entertaining. I agree. It was. Everybody's favorite teachers were those that could make things interesting and lively. I remember having a science teacher and I couldn't wait to get to the science class yes. because he made everything come alive. He mixed in the information with entertainment. I felt smarter, but he was also a wonderful storyteller. And that's what I love so much about your books and the Thank work you. that you're doing is you're a oh good God, storyteller. You're so, you're so kind. I, I will actually use this opportunity to remember my math teacher Mr. Sawah was his name, who I had a very bad experience on, I think, eighth grade, where my math teacher was really not good. And my dad then found Mr. Sawah, which was basically he would walk in. It was a private tutor. So he would walk into our house once a week and then open his bag and get out 12 colored pencils and then start to draw trigonometry, start to draw with every layer in a different color and jokes all the time. And I promise you, without that person, I would have completely hated math. But it is important for us to actually bring a little bit of that. There is fun in knowledge, I think is what I'm trying to say. You can actually have a lot of fun listening to something that is factual and deep and demanding, but entertaining. And I think uh, we had a, one of those today. I do too. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, Rebecca, thank you for coming over. It's wonderful. And we will let all of the other people go now and then talk about how you and I can do something together. But before I do, I would hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did for all of you listening. Once again, I thank you so much for the alibi to give me to meet the most amazing and interesting people on the planet. It really is a privilege and an honor to record this podcast. I hope you liked it. If you did, share it with others on social media. Rate us a five stars on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done that. It really helps spread the message. And uh, yeah, remember that even though our lives are very, very busy, there's always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will uh, see you next time.